0: Uh, hello everybody, I hope you've all had a great week, uh, me and Didier certainly have and uh, we're doing another episode of the podcast Seeking Happiness today with a lovely lady called Helen who um, is a teacher but we'll talk about uh, her past, what she did before teaching and how she personally has developed a routine for creating a happy environment for herself and making some positive impacts and changes
1: did so yeah it was a great episode with ellen uh and uh she's a bit of a um, of a fan of the show isn't she and we are gonna share some of her uh, audio recording that she um she sent us that actually yes. just uh, made us very happy i mean i was very tough when i listened to it i don't know about you and but I was really chuffed, mate. And uh what I think and one of the good
0: things that came out of it after speaking to Helen afterwards was that I me and you have to have a bit more chat, a bit more conversation between each other, and uh that yeah, would give okay. me a chance, chance to verbally slap your head every now and again.
1: No, I mean I mean she gave us green lights. Oh, actually, talking about green lights, we gotta mention to the all to the uh, listeners. This books that you just read, didn't you? And I've I've read like last year. Yes, that's- Matthew McConaughey's
0: book. Yeah. yeah, very good book, isn't it? Brilliant book, mate. Yeah, I've I've I'm three quarters of the way through now. I remember you mentioned it to me, and I started reading it. Mm-hmm. I think that's
1: available on
0: audio books as well, isn't it? it is and
1: uh, what's good about it is that he does it himself, so you get to listen to him. And I think yes. he's a great guy. I think he's a really good guy. I would love to buy him a pint if he's around. fishy. I would I would love that as well. Uh,
0: and you posted on our seeking happiness. Uh, I think it was either on the Facebook
1: page or on the blog. Mm. It was him presenting to students, wasn't it? Yes, I put something on the Facebook uh, page. Oh, I, I, by the way, I like to remind people that listeners that if they um, enjoyed the podcast, to leave a little review on iTunes um, podcast or any any of the um, any of the ways of listening to the podcast because that does help ratings and uh, it does help bringing um hopefully a little more people to the podcast but well going back to what she said we need to talk a little more about our life and our our experiences um together which i'm looking forward to do yeah we'll do that as another little section a
0: couple of other books i just wanted to uh suggest before we 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 go to the interview was Um, I remember Jane Considine mentioning uh, a book called Emotional Intelligence by Mm. Daniel Goleman, which I I had a little flick through, and I thought that was a really, really good book. Mm. Um, Definitely worth recommending to people that are looking for a little bit of happiness or positive change. And one of the books that I came across which I, I wanted to recommend was a book called 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. And it's by Amy Morin, um, and that's definitely worth a look to find out those thirteen things that mentally strong people don't do, because um, that's going to really help you with your positive changes and happiness.
1: Oh, can I get? Can I? Uh, I'll i say a last one, but it's nothing to do with happiness. But it is a way because I was very happy when I read it, and I think a lot of people know about this book now. But if you don't haven't read it yet, Ready Player One uh, it's is a great find. And uh, if you're into 1980s uh, pop culture, uh, you're gonna love that book.
0: Yes, yes, I, I wholeheartedly agreed. Did, uh, and if I remember rightly, we we were discussing that when they made the film. Uh, even though we're encouraging people to read the book, some some of it was filmed in Birmingham,
1: wasn't it? A good, oh, yeah. a good port. And you number. can uh, you can recognize Birmingham in the background, and uh, what's funny about this is that uh, in the scene you can see a double decker bus in the background, and the scene yeah. is supposed to be in, in Columbus, um, Ohio, America. So, so there there is uh, Spielberg. You got you got that shot wrong. <laughs> yeah, we
0: call you out, Spielberg. Yeah. Anyway, let's go to the interview with Helen. Yes, that's good. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another edition of our podcast Seeking Happiness with myself, Andy Milligan, and Didier Soulier. Are you out there today,
1: Didier? Yes, Andy, I'm here. Very happy to be here. Excellent. Have you had a good week? Yes, very good, in fact. What what have you done that's made you happy this week? Um uh... I can't think of it now. No, I've been I've been writing. I've been writing a lot. And I've been exercising a lot. And uh, that's just... And I've, I've I've mentioned, I have to mention this. I've just been eating um a lot of uh, chocolate, uh, dark chocolate, because it makes you <laughs> happy. So I recommend it to people out there. Just eat dark chocolate. Not a lot, but just a bit every day. Anyway. Yes.
0: You were telling me earlier that uh, dark chocolate, is it
1: magnesium? Magnesium, that's um, right, yeah. You yes. can get it from avocado as well. And um, brazil, uh, brazil nuts, brazil? Well, um, brazil nuts,
0: yeah. If yeah, so I eat avocado, dark chocolate and brazil nuts, I'm going to be super happy this week. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Fantastic. I've had a really good week. Um, I, I think I told you I was fortunate enough to meet Mr. Tom Cruise this week. Oh,
1: yeah, he's your he pal doing, now.
0: Yeah, he was doing a bit of filming in Birmingham. I managed to, to catch up with him. I was very lucky. And I was wondering this week how cool it would be to get out of your bed in the morning, look in the mirror and think, I'm Tom Cruise. That Mm. must be a great feeling. Not really. He's too small. He is a small little fella, but he's full of loveliness and he's a very happy man. And I want to get to a point this week where I'm looking in the mirror and and I'm I'm looking in the mirror and saying to myself, I'm Andy Milligan. I'm really happy with my life.
1: Yeah,
0: you should do that already. Yes, I'm almost, I'm almost there. I'm almost <laughs> there, Didier. We're, we're very close. Today, yeah. we've got a really, really nice guest um, that we're going to introduce. Uh, we have a lovely lady called Helen. Mm-hmm. Helen's going to introduce herself now. So I'm just going to pass, her, pass you over to Helen, uh, if you'd like to introduce yourself, Helen.
2: Hello, everyone. Um, my name's Helen. And um, well, it's a, a privilege, privilege to join you. And thank you, Didier. And thank you, Andy, for asking me to join you this evening i'm um, looking forward to doing a bit more of the search for happiness with you
0: excellent Um, what i wanted to start off with helen is uh if, if it's okay with you it's it's a question we ask most of our guests about about their background and about their early life and career choices can you tell us anything about your early life and career choices
2: yes well i mean i i do hope that i say something interesting but yeah i can start with that certainly no no problem at all so i was brought up pretty much in the south of england um, for the very early part of my life i was born in swindon and then very quickly we moved to truro in the beautiful cornwall Um, then we moved to the still beautiful sussex uh coast pretty much near the coast in um, a place called lewis and i lived there till i was eight when my dad who was moving, not because he was on the run, by the way, uh, but because (laughs) he was following his career um, and his promotions. uh, He got a a big job, his biggest job, I think, uh, up in Cheshire. So we then went from one extreme of the country to the other end of the country, and I grew up mostly for about 15 years in Nantwich in Cheshire, sleepy little black and white Nantwich. And in terms of early career choices, my my dad was chief executive of Leighton Hospital, uh, the biggest hospital in Cheshire. And uh, he was, we started off in hospital administration and then built himself up to being chief executive. And that really was my first career choice. So I set off um, after university to become a hospital administrator, but I fell at the first hurdle and didn't even get through the first interview round. And um, Dad and I didn't question it, we just accepted it and I didn't try again. Uh, Whereas I think, and and this probably is, probably the first thing worth saying this evening is, I wouldn't let that happen again. Mm -hmm. I think I would seek a sort of um, what I actually wanted and the happiness I would hope to get in that, particularly in career-wise. I think I would would try again if I had my time, time over um so um
0: Helen sorry to interject can you can you remember can you remember that time and how you felt when you when you didn't get into that particular career choice
2: yes I I remember it I remember it distinctly it wasn't that dad and I expected me to get in because he was already in Mm. it um however I did expect the interview to be an easier process than it was. Mm. And when I got back and told dad about the interview, you know, you know he, he said, well, what kind of questions did they ask you? And I, I told him one question after the other. And he said, well, they're really asking you questions that they would ask a person who's already in hospital administration and has been in training for two years. Mm. And he thought perhaps they did that because he was on my application as, being already in hospital administration. So we felt a bit miffed, if Mm -hmm. I'm honest. And uh, I suppose I felt a little bit aggrieved. I was certainly very disappointed because I absolutely had no other idea what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I knew exactly what I didn't want to do and that was to become a teacher. (laughs) I absolutely was in no way going to become a teacher. Many, many of my family members were already teachers. And that is something I did not want to do. uh,
1: Helen, why why is that? that? Why did you want to be a teacher?
2: I thought it was too much like hard work. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I saw the hours. Um, I think my grandfather was probably the first person in our family to become a teacher. Mm -hmm. So that was because he came from a family of 11 children. And they grew up in Lowestoft, little fishing village on the East Coast. And he told us tales of them literally sitting around the breakfast table and passing one boiled egg around the table. And each person would have a spoon out of the one boiled egg. Right. But it had to go to the stepfather first because he was working. So there was not much egg going around this table. And I think um, once he'd finished with the Second World War and um, where he became a major in the army, um, I think he really wanted to have a career that was secure Mm -hmm. and for life and that would be so dependable he would never put his family in that same situation. And, you know, as many of us, because, hey, you can guess the rest of the story already. Yeah, I became a teacher. <laughs> um,
1: how, what happened?
2: <laughs> Sorry, Didier. How,
1: how did you become a teacher then? How did
2: I become a teacher? Well, um, okay, so I reject. I, I got rejected for being um, from entering hospital administration. Mm-hmm. And I shied away from teaching so far, I thought I'll go as far away as possible and I'll apply to Marks and Spencers. <laughs> and I'll apply to their graduate training um, scheme post postgraduate training scheme. I was huge kudos in these schemes, it's like working for Unilever or you know, Cadbury's, these sort of massive companies. Um, We were told at the time there were 700 applicants for each application for each post, sorry. Mm -hmm. Um, It was the late 80s when everybody wanted to be a yuppie. And it was a three day residential interview process. They interviewed you during the day. You had exercises, management games, strategy games. But they also interviewed you at breakfast, at the bar in the evenings, at dinner. It's 100% full on. So I went for this and got it. Wow. And I joined I've, Mark's, I've Mark's. fantastic. Center. It was fantastic until I actually got there. <laughs> and then I didn't like it at all.
0: Okay. Did you have to move away from home, Helen?
2: Yes, I did. Yeah. Um, I, Marks and Spencer had uh, was not only difficult to get into, but it had very strong stipulations. Uh, it really wanted you to be completely committed to the company. Right. So there were girls who I worked with once I got there who were engaged to be married, but would not disclose that because that was a signal to the company that you were not, completely committed to the company.
0: Oh gosh, it sounds like a branch of the military. <laughs> <Marks> <laughs> it wasn't quite
2: that bad. <laughs> Although um, at one stage they did make a doctor's appointment for me on my behalf. So yeah, they they wanted a lot of commitment. So to to help myself in the application process, I put that I was fully mobile. Yes. Which meant they could send me for my training to anywhere in the country and they sent me to Deepest, Darkest Kent, to Gravesend in Kent.
0: Wow. Um, and what, what was the next stepping stone that led you into teaching? What happens?
2: Well, I didn't like Marks and Spencers, and I lasted yeah. probably 13 weeks. Okay, right. Um, but I didn't want to go home with my tail between my legs and be a bounce-back kid. Uh, so I... Stayed down in Gravesend and got a job in London with Ryman's. Do you remember Ryman's, the big one I on do, Birmingham yeah. High Street?
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: So after a while, I moved up to the new flagship store, Ryman's on Birmingham New Street, and carried on in both personnel and retail management. But I knew it wasn't what I wanted to do forever. And of course, by that stage, I was, I say, of course, but I haven't told you this bit, I went to university in Birmingham. And by the time I moved back to New Street Store, of course, I was living in Birmingham, which was my old town. And so I dropped back into university to tuck a teaching qualification, a one year PGCE under my belt, while I had to think about what I wanted to do long term.
0: Right. And,
2: um, of course, you then go on your teaching practice placements and you fall in love with the children you're teaching
1: yeah
2: and when the ones that tell you for all your teaching practice that they hate you and they don't want to do the work burst into tears on the day you're leaving at that point you think okay I've touched a, a positive impact on these these young people um, yes
0: Wow. What's very interesting about what you're you're saying about your journey, Helen, is it's it's remarkably similar to the 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 lady that we had on a few weeks ago, Jane Considine, who's now an educational consultant. She she yes. went in, she went into retail. I think it was uh I think it was House of Fraser she ended up working for and she I said she was, mm-hmm. Rackham's, it was, yeah. Rackham's yeah. it was, yes. Good call. And yeah, she 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 ended up going into education afterwards because she she said she you know with her mother being a teacher, she would she would never ever thought she'd consider becoming a teacher, but she ended up going to education as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. So a very similar and journey.
2: So there that's where I ended up um in in teaching, really. And I started off in yes. grammar school. So that was another uh, default as well. I, I I was quite a strong socialist. Um or at least I thought it was. And I was very nervous about the teaching interview process. So I thought, well, I'll apply for a job that I don't want. And I'll apply to a school that I'm never going to work at because I don't agree with the politics behind it. I applied to one of the schools in the King Edward um, system, one of the seven schools there, uh, the grammar schools. And um, I, I got the job.
0: I was just waiting for you to say that I, I didn't want the job I got the job it's always the way
2: uh, and then had to be persuaded to take the job so I confessed oh well I'm a socialist you know I don't really want to be here because you know the Labour Council in Birmingham had tried to close the school already and they'd had closure notices pinned on the on the gate um so I knew that you know my politics didn't sit readily and and my Potential boss, head of head of English at that school at the time, kind of sat me down and said, "Well, you know, we have really poor kids here," and the grammar. So he reminded me that the grammar school system, as it was, was set up to help equalise opportunities to get into education, and it wasn't for the middle classes to get a free, good, top quality education. Um, and there were really were kids there in the 1990s who were on the poverty line, whose parents were in prison. Uh, there were children there who were full-time carers. Um, we had children there who were abused. Mm. You name it, it was happening. They were not all privileged, well-cultured, um, middle-class, children who'd been highly tutored to get into the grammar school system and he just won me over with that argument and and of course i also remembered that both my grandfather and my grandmother had actually both gone to grammar schools (laughs) and that had helped to lift them both out of poverty
0: yeah and just just taking you off off track a little bit um you know cuz i have been a teacher and i i do understand that you you do end up dealing with with so many pupils that have their own unhappiness and problems in their life that you're 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 so um you're so connected to them and trying to make their lives happier that sometimes you you forget about your own life and your own circumstances do you think that's something you experienced in your career Helen
2: oh. where you Absolutely. You've been try-
0: trying so hard to help other people that you forgot about your own happiness.
2: Absolutely. Um, I and mean, it was in that first teaching post. I stayed there a long time actually. In your first teaching post, you're only supposed to stay there a short time and you know be climbing the ladder of promotion. But I stayed there nine years actually. And it wasn't um it was about in the middle of that time that my first husband left me very unexpectedly. Um, wasn't expecting him to go at all. And at the time we had a 10 month old baby. Mm. So that was a, um, shock shock to the system. Yeah. Um, Not least because also, um, that, well, that led to a divorce, but at, at the time I was also the first person in our family's history to have a divorce. Mm. So there was no previous experience. There was no no, no talk of marital breakups or or anything of that sort. So it was completely unfamiliar territory um, to me. But uh, two things kept me going. One was the baby because who else was going to get out of bed (laughs) first thing in the morning, um, which also stopped me drinking too much. Mm. Um, I had an English teacher brilliant, brilliant English teacher who I absolutely worshipped when I was at school. And she had a a horrific divorce, but actually became alcoholic while she was trying to cope with it. Mm -hmm. And her favorite tipple was port. And my favorite tipple is port. And I can remember thinking, can't afford to make the same mistake that she made. Um, So the baby got me out of bed. Um, The baby, uh, stop me drinking too much or drinking much at all actually and work was my next saving grace yes because um as Jane Constantine mentions it is all consuming if you are a teacher mm-hmm. there is never time to to breathe I mean with the baby and teaching I thought I- I'm never going to read a book for pleasure ever again in the whole of my life <laughs> yes. so um those two things And yes, there's always somebody at work, at school in a worse position than you are. And I don't think we should find or seek happiness by looking at, well, who's worse off than I am? I'm not suggesting that that's a healthy philosophy to adopt by by any means. Um, But when you are presented with somebody in front of you, who is crying on the outside while you're crying on the inside, you're gonna deal with the person who's crying on the outside and um, try and stop that happening for them.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Or try and, uh, well, in, in an academic school like a King Edward School, is just help them achieve their academic best. And we used to have some hilarious times. Um, I used to give out, Have we've got time for this. Uh, I used yeah. to give out little stickers you know, reward stickers. Yeah. And um, of course, mostly you give these out to the younger year groups because you think they appreciate it. And I used to have a range of different stickers, animals, gold stars, all the rest of it. And I started putting bunny stickers, bunny stickers at the end of sixth form essays. And at the time I was, t- <laughs> I was teaching all boys and uh, uh-huh. English always attracted the rugby team. So you'd get these huge butch six formers coming in, and you'd hand back their essays, and there'd be this little bunny sticker stuck <laughs> at the bottom. And uh, <laughs> Loads of kids would, yeah, you know, they really like this, and I was thinking, okay, so I'll do it again. And then uh, two things happened. There was uh, there was one one boy never got um, a mark high enough to get this bunny sticker. So he was very disparaging about these bunny stickers. Didn't like them at all, and uh, used to mock the people who'd got a bunny sticker, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And um, so that went. That was rumbling on over the weeks. And then another time, I got an essay handed in. The next essay handed in to me for me to mark, and it was a brilliant essay. And I got to the end, and right at the end, there was a little cartoon of a pie with two little rabbit ears sticking out of the top.
1: Brilliant. <laughs>
2: But at the same time, the boy who hadn't got a good, a good enough essay to get a sticker did actually deserve a a bunny sticker. And I thought, well, I don't think he likes these. I'd better not put one on. And then I thought, oh, hang on, you know, equality and all that. I better treat him fairly. So I stuck a bunny sticker on the end of his essay and I was handing them out around the room. And I looked at him and he was going through all my comments and he eventually turned over to the back and he didn't say a word. But he just did that kind of ka-ching gesture
0: oh, with his when he
2: saw the bunny sticker.
0: Yeah, um, even so even big boys love a bunny sticker.
2: They do. <laughs> of
0: course they, I'd love a bunny sticker right now.
2: I've still got some, I'll find you one. I'm gonna
0: i am I'm gonna I'm gonna hold you to that, Helen.
2: You and just wear bunny stickers.
1: Oh, Dids, you've got a question, haven't you? Uh yeah, I mean it's it's not related. Uh, it's more related to um, to the COVID crisis and uh, how how Helen actually um, um, what if she she how she how she, uh, she faced it um, and what was what was it like for her really in terms of um, was it hard was it difficult was it how was it Helen for you?
2: Slightly embarrassing question, really, um, because I don't think my experience of the COVID crisis was the same as many, many millions of people's experience. Yeah. Um, I'm I, I'm in a mildly vulnerable group. So I was sent home health wise. So I was sent home to work for 12 to what turned out to be about 15 weeks from home. And I've worked from home before and I, I loved it in the past. I don't have any problem in motivating myself on getting up or imposing a routine on myself at home. Um, So working from home was already a hugely experienced for me, but was similar during COVID as well. And I was very, very lucky that that was the case. Mm -hmm. Um, Instantly, it gave me more time. You know, I, I, I have a very short commute, about 40, 45 minutes commute. But straight away, that was an hour and a half's time back of what I used to call dead time. And I used that time to walk my dogs in the local my dog, sorry, in the local woods. Um, That walk soon progressed to running. So I started running and I built myself up to 10K regularly. Um, Sadly, that's had to stop uh, due to uh, an arthritic hip, which has now developed. But um, that really showed me that I could do something that I've never done before never run never been sporty um and it when i was doing it it gave me an amazing sense of strength and power and it's, it's a bit odd that that sense of being strong and that sense of i don't know how to put it i am and i can hasn't left me even though i've had to stop running something that the running built into my character during lockdown, the first lockdown, and la- last year, it's only this year I've had to stop running, um, has stayed with me, right. which was totally unexpected. Um, it-, it had a huge impact on my family life. Uh, of course, I was at home, I was on site. My husband could see much of what I do in my job, or at least hear me whittering about it on Zoom mm-hmm. meetings. Um, he began to understand why it takes up so much of my time and that had a very positive impact on my relationship with my husband which again I know wasn't always the case for people who felt more trapped in relationships when they were at home so I I am aware that again I I was very privileged Um, and also of course being a teacher it meant that if anything there was just as much work to do if not more work to be done and so i was still paid and my security was there and of course for many many other people all of that security fell away either their jobs weren't there or they couldn't continue something of their routine or they weren't entitled to furlough and they fell between that pay and furlough safety net Um, yeah just
0: sorry helen just i was just gonna say just just uh running through um the post-covid uh situation i know that you've been doing things to to make some changes in in your life and to to, to seek happiness for yourself can you just tell the listeners what
1: what sort of things you've been doing recently what's the routine
2: yeah, well... sorry
1: Didier. So like, was what's, what's your, your routines now looks like yeah, if, uh, if you don't mind
2: Cheryl. well this this part is I have to say, it's completely down to listening to your podcasts. This part of my life, um, I've I've sort of uh, gleaned what I can from from each of them to try to make very practical changes um, to to how I live and how I think. Great. Right. Says I'm a bit of a magpie, and I suppose that's what I've done. So um, I'm not particularly consistent in my approach, but. Um, one thing that I try to do, and I think Andy, this came from you yourself actually, is setting the intentions for the day, uh, for each day, but I've coupled that with um, the attitude that the things I need to do or I want to do or I've got to do are not necessarily going to be difficult or become Overwhelming. So, I've not just tried to set intentions, but I've tried to change my attitude towards those intentions as well. Right. Because I am somebody really that does feel overwhelmed very, very quickly um, and sees life as tough. Uh, and even yeah. just thinking this is going to be easier than I think it is, that's made a, an immense um, impact. Um, I've cut out listening to much of the news.
0: Yes, we discussed that, I remember. Yeah, that's that's a good thing.
2: Yeah, that that really has decreased my worry levels. Mm -hmm. Um, I've found so many articles have negative headlines and then you get a third way down the article and they turn the argument on itself and they say, oh, actually, it's not as bad (laughs) and somebody's come up with this massive solution. And you kind of think, well, why didn't you put that as the headline?
0: (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. That smile.
0: <laughs> that's right and just just on just on that note as well Helen we you know you were saying you were getting something out of the top three tips that we were we were projecting from people what what would you say your top three tips are at this point that you could you could share with the listeners oh gosh um
2: when I look back at you know mom- moments in my life particularly challenging moments it's it's actually those challenging moments that have in some ways been the most satisfying moments of my life, um, even though they've also been so difficult. So perhaps when I became a freelance tutor and freelance writer and I gave up full-time teaching for five years, perhaps when I became, uh, did my MA or was forced to be a single mom when I didn't want to be, um, I don't subscribe to the you can do anything philosophy that you hear about on the media so much. I don't believe or think we can do or be anything, but rather I do think we underestimate what we can do. Mm. So my top tip is to take the challenge or face up to the challenge, but before you do, find one or two truths about yourself that you can count on that are going to see you through that challenge, no matter what that challenge ends up putting before you. So for example, I know that I am quite a determined person. If I say I'm gonna do something, I'll do it. I've learned that I'm quite resilient. It takes quite a lot to knock me back to the point where perhaps my mental health is in jeopardy. And I I usually survive knockbacks so that I know I can count on those two inner strengths no matter what life throws at me
0: i think that's really good advice helen and you were saying you had a few more tips as well
2: well just just two more um there's a verse in the bible that i remember from when i was a child it says something like do unto others as you would have them do unto yourself something Mm -hmm. like that that was probably a very archaic version of it um i think i'm quite good at the second part of that the doing unto others Mm -hmm. But I don't think I'm so good at treating myself fairly. Mm -hmm. I i i expect too much of myself sometimes. I keep going till I'm worn out. Um, Sometimes I sacrifice my own good feelings for others. And I've learned that this is not a healthy way to go on. Mm -hmm. Um, You need to help yourself be in a good place so that you can then continue to support others. So that's my second top tip. And lastly, um, something I've been thinking about since episode three, I think, of your podcast, this idea of acceptance um, and of working out what you can and can't control. And I love the Venn diagram where you draw uh, two overlapping circles and you put the things you can't control in the left-hand segment. And something like this, you put the the things you can control in the right-hand segment. And then in the middle, That overlapping area is where you write down the things you can influence or change or minimise. And I think if you can give yourself time to either do a mental version of that diagram or actually sit down and draw it out, it really brings clarity to where you are at when you're facing something or trying to make a decision. And the fact that you've done that, I think encourages you to be less anxious and more content because essentially, once you've been through that, analysis you're recognizing you've done all you can and there's some kind of satisfaction and closure in that as such so well, there we go great. my top three tips
0: that's really really brilliant advice helen and i personally love a venn diagram <laughs> i think venn diagrams are brilliant i used ooh, to use ooh. them a lot in my teaching practice So i'm, I'm going to definitely use that that tip myself Um, Can I just finish by saying thanks so much for giving us your time. Um, Like everybody, our time is valuable and, um, you know, hopefully just doing the interview uh, has brought you another little piece of happiness. I know it's made me happy. And the other thing I wanted to say was, was about your, you've given us some really good feedback on the previous interviews that we've done some verbal feedback that we we will post for listeners as well so they can they can hear your your inputs and your reflections on that advice and how you've actually taken that advice and put it into practice if that would be okay with you Helen
2: oh uh, you're you're very welcome listen it's been an absolute pleasure um to to listen to the podcast initially and uh, to to have I think I've I've mentioned this to you already to have two chaps take the time to sit down and discuss happiness and how do we look after our mental well-being and how do we change our lives to be happier I, I think it's such an important role something that you know we we need at the moment um and as i say it's or as i as i hope i've shown it's had a huge impact on me uh this this summer so thank you an enormous privilege in being asked to take part in this too can't say thank you enough actually
1: <laughs> oh ellen can i just say you know when you said that you too out on yourself you know you'd be surprised that we all do that and uh, i've I've yeah, read sure. somewhere that you've got to treat yourself like a friend will actually help you, you know, your friend will not judge you too harshly so when when you when you think internally, I think you have to remember that we're trying to trying to think as as what a friend will tell you, and and it's usually it's usually not that hard as you can be on yourself because we all do it. I think we are all guilty of it.
2: I'm sure.
0: I'm, I'm sure you're absolutely right. I recognise that. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, we will do it. Well, thanks. Right. right. Thanks ever so much, Helen. And hopefully you're very we'll, welcome. we'll get to speak to you again soon.
2: I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm not going very far. <laughs>
0: God bless. Look after yourself.
2: Take care. Bye-bye, Didi. Bye, Andy.
0: Bye, Bye now. Hello, everyone.
2: This is Helen. Um... Checking in with you on my latest listener response uh, thoughts, really, and reactions to um, episode one when um, Andy and Didier interviewed Mark about um, NLP and how it can help us in our quest to seek happiness. Uh, This is one of... The list of things that I want to do today um, that will help me feel happier, and that is making my second recording. Uh, whether or not you find anything useful in it, uh, I do hope you do. Essentially, as I've mentioned before, um, that would be a brilliant byproduct of my first objective in doing something with integrity. I've been thinking about past happiness since um, the last recording and realised that stereotypically one of the happiest times in my life was my childhood and I am trying to regain something of that through putting into practice the things that um, these experts and Andy and Didier suggest. When I was studying literature in my early days as a teenager we read Juno and the Paycock by Sean O'Casey. And there is a character in there, the the mother, Mary, um, who is described as having a face that is wearied by the world and that all her experiences um, essentially have carved lines into her face. And I can remember thinking, I don't want to become like that. I don't want the world to do that to me. And to an extent, it has. Unavoidably, sometimes with me noticing during really bad times and sometimes without me realising that I'm letting it happen to me. And uh, I've linked that idea with this, I comment in the first episode, the interview with Mark, about remembering to smile uh, and lift those lines and carvings that our experiences have Built into our faces um, a smile can lift those so that is one thing that I'm trying to do stop letting my face fall into neutral and try to bring a smile um, to my face of course the 80s music is helping with that a lot something else I wanted to add in which is it's not directly from episode one uh, but an idea of mine that i've had for a while i I do a little bit of writing it's not very successful it's not published um although i would love it to be it's short stories for adults they're quite dark and i didn't mean them to be dark short stories but they're quite cathartic in that respect and I haven't actually put my theory into practice in writing them, but I have this idea that anything that is written down or spoken, recorded in any way, auditory or visual, uh, should begin with the word and. Because I have really felt that arriving in 1965 into the world as I did, I'd missed a lot. And that Everything following that follows on and is added into the human experience. So I'm going to start my recording now by commenting on things which were talked about in episode one. And I'm going to start with the word and. So and it can be added that this idea of being consistent and navigating ourselves through the world with excellence really struck a chord with me. Um, To begin with, Mark was talking about it in terms of being negative and using those pre-programmed ways in which we have learnt to operate, uh, pushing us into negativity rather than into happiness. Uh, One of the comments that really struck a note with me was His idea that voices of some of his clients that once motivated them to succeed now beat them up. And I think that is uh, really true for myself. My mind is highly programmed uh, to follow patterns, beliefs, my drivers, my motivators, my values. Quite a lot of them definitely come from my past, my childhood. There is a theory, isn't there, that um, everything that happens to you before you are seven has sort of greatest impact on you. And I had a very steady child childhood, very happy childhood with two parents who are still together. And um, they gave me a very positive experience of life. However, it has left my mind highly programmed, which is why things like the idea of the more the more help me to now break down the programs which have become less motivating and and now beat me up uh the idea of releasing myself from those programs and coupling that with being in the present has really helped me so i've been thinking about my beliefs and my motivators and my values from the past I've realised that I've left a number of my beliefs behind actually, uh, I've had a hugely Christian upbringing as in evangelical Christian upbringing and I don't follow all those beliefs to the letter anymore, however what I have kept and what those beliefs have influenced and still influence daily are my values. It's as if Christianity is that map that Mark was talking about, the map of the territory, but I actually find my way through the territory physically, mentally, emotionally, through sustaining my values, and uh, I wonder if anyone else finds that ringing true for them as well. This idea of being in the present really interests me and uh, links up with something that I learnt about 18 months, maybe 24 months ago now, when I started doing yoga, my yoga teacher has a little strap line uh, about breathing, relaxing and being in the present and that she adds the present is the only place where life exists. And today, just re-listening to episode one, I've, I've linked together these ideas of the present, mindfulness and trying to break those unhelpful pre-programmings that we have dictating how we're feeling and and how well we're doing. If we put together the idea that the present is the only place where life exists and that we can break our pre-programs as well, uh, we can get to the point where we're thinking about well, how do I feel and why am I thinking about things in the way I'm thinking about them now, this moment. And I've discovered that even, even though I'm much happier since I've started listening to these podcasts and putting some of these things into place, I do spend a lot of time worrying about the future. And a lot of those worries are well, obviously because of your amygdala and everything that's happening neurologically a lot of those worries about things that might happen in the future are definitely based on past experiences and just today it has clicked that one program I need to break is this idea that because it's happened in the past if the same situation comes around again there's nothing that says it has to happen in the same way again and that if I am mindful of that And thinking more logically that life is now, not what may or may not happen in the future. That instantly breaks that pre-programming of incessant worry, really, for me. The other section of the podcast which I found really helpful was when Andy and uh, Mark were talking about how NLP can help in teaching and in teaching us to... more mindful and mindfulness not being an element of relaxation but of being in the present and i love those questions absolutely love those questions what can i do to help you understand that better how can we look at this from a different point of view that will give you more insight so i'm really taking those on board as well and i'm I'm beginning to use those questions Uh, not not in teaching but in getting through those worries, uh, using them to break those pre-programs and bring myself a greater happiness. Great episode, chaps. Absolutely love it. Thank you so much, Mark, for your insights. And I'm going to love you and leave you now and go back to my happy painting. Happy days. And hello, Helen here. Welcome to listener response episode three. I say welcome because although I started making these recordings to support my own search for happiness, Andy and Didier have said they want to share these recordings as an extension of our shared search for happiness. Today I'm thinking about what Paul Candelant spoke about in episode two of Andy and Didier's Seeking Happiness podcast. But before I start, I want to tell you about a man I worked with about 30 years ago, I suppose, called Harold. A huge role model for many people, um, particularly those people he worked with and worked for. And if you didn't know him and somebody was introducing Harold to you, they would tell you how he is always happy. An absolutely phenomenal thing to say about anyone. So. I was very interested to meet this gentleman and indeed when I met him it was absolutely true. He was always happy regardless of the day, the weather, uh, whether the work was demanding or going well, regardless of what was happening in his family life and of course just like any of us Harold didn't always have easy times to get through. It it um, took a while for me to feel able to ask him why and how are you always happy but when I did this is what he said when I was young I decided I was going to be happy I just made that decision and that was all he gave me it it was as clear-cut as that he didn't give me a grand philosophy or any reasoning behind it This decision he just made, deciding, I am going to be happy. So, there's a thought for us. Uh, I wonder how much of finding happiness is actually making a decision. So, today, Paul's episode, uh, his interview, made me think about finding happiness through rediscovering comfort and acceptance what i mean by acceptance i think is acceptance of ourselves acceptance of things around us of course this is rooted in paul's interview a fascinating interview and as soon as paul started talking i thought to myself i think i know where this is going to go and if i'm honest I found some of it quite challenging. One of Paul's first comments was about his happy childhood and playing tracking. If you haven't played tracking it's a brilliant game which I highly recommend to you. I think you could possibly play at any age but it is an excellent game for the whole family to play together. And for those of you who don't know how to play I thought I would tell you how. We played it when we were children. Uh, That would be my two brothers and my wider family. You need to be ideally outside in the woods or somewhere wild, preferably where there are places to hide. So the countryside is ideal. Also, you need a whole heap of sticks because you're going to make arrows with those. You split into two groups and one group goes off to hide and the other group form the trackers who track those people who are hiding. They follow a series of arrows laid by the other group out on the path, arrows made by one long stick and two shorter, smaller sticks making an arrowhead on either side, lying on the ground. And if you're following the hunted, if you're a hunter you you do that until you get to either a pile of sticks or a pile of stones and that's a signal to say something like within 30 feet of this pile of stones or whatever whatever you decide between you everybody else is hiding so you stop tracking and then you have to try and find those people who are hidden it's a brilliant game it's got that kind of mystery we don't know where we're going You're talking, you're working together as a team because you're trying to spot where the arrows are. It's tricky in itself sometimes. And you don't have to rush. So there's lots of time to chat along the way. So playing tracking with children or family or friends is is great fun. Go out and do it if you haven't done it yet. Get some people together and uh, enjoy the fun. Of course, much of Paul's interview is him talking about his relationship with God and how he came to Christianity. As it happens, I had a hugely evangelical Christian upbringing, which has been a big influence on my life. I became a Christian when I was eight. I had that specific conversion experience. However, this this hasn't meant that my Christian life has gone smoothly. And I think I've talked in a previous recording about how I lost some of my beliefs, but I didn't lose my values. And this is why I found Paul's interview challenging. Obviously for Paul, his Christian life is going really well at the moment. And he has great comfort in his relationship with God. And I want to give testimony to the comfort and absolute acceptance you can find in a relationship with God and in developing a close relationship with God. I absolutely know this to be true. Despite what I've said about my own experience of beliefs as such, I I still absolutely know this to be true, that there is enormous comfort and absolute unconditional acceptance if you are in a relationship with God however for some of us this is not always straightforward and Paul's got me thinking and in thinking about this although I've had to think about some pretty sad times in losing something of my relationship with God the effect of even thinking about this has raised my spirits which is why I'm sharing it now uh I just want to say that these are purely my ideas, of course. I'm not a preacher. I certainly don't want to foist my opinions on anybody. So here's what I've been thinking. I think my relationship with God isn't or hasn't been any easier than a relationship with another human being. It strikes me that just because a relationship with God is based on faith, an insubstantial, intangible experience of belief, in my experience, this doesn't mean that you can willingly create a perfect relationship with God. It's not wishful thinking, it's not an act of the imagination where you can imagine or create a perfect relationship with God just as you wish. In my experience, if you enter a relationship with God, you will find God is already there. God's already in existence. He is what he is, or God is what God is. Uh, My daughter and I are having lots of conversations about use of pronouns at the moment. So um, I'm going to refer to God as God. Although personally, I also think of God as nature and science but but that's where I am I can understand why the scientists reject God I can understand why people who believe in God struggle to accept that everything is scientific and I can understand why nature just goes ahead and does its thing regardless but to, to get back to Um, the point I was trying to make, I, I really do have this fixed idea that God is already in existence before we find him, which suggests that Paul is absolutely along the right lines when he says you need to recognise and get to know God. Take time to hear God. You don't get to find God's comfort and acceptance by creating it. If you find God... The comfort and acceptance you can experience is the happiness which God has already created, that is already in existence, waiting for you, waiting for us. I've found, as I've suggested though, that just as you can find happiness in God, you can also lose some of that happiness, just as you do with any relationship you're in as a human being. And I find this interesting because although I may have lost some comfort in that relationship sometimes, I have to say I have never lost feeling or the belief that I am still accepted by God. So when Paul says that we need to take or make the time to get to know God's voice, to recognise God's voice, I'm right behind him. You certainly you certainly won't find happiness in confusing God's voice with your own. And you certainly won't find what God calls happiness. He calls it life in all its fullness, uh, which God promises us by listening to our own voices. We have to learn to discern the difference between God's voice and our own. I think. My mum finds it easy to hear God. She also has this phrase, which she has used quite often of late, recently in particular, speaking of what she terms God incidences. And I've just brought this to mind in reference to when Paul talked about the canteen server who happened to be there or was put there by A God incident, as my mum would say, on the first night that Paul found himself in prison. I, I don't know what to think about God incidences, really. They make me smile in many ways. Paul talking about the canteen server just being there at the right time, the right place also reminded me of a friend I've lost contact with who was in a life-threatening car crash in France when we were in our 20s. She was in a dreadful car crash and she was coming to in the ambulance when the ambulance came to her with the paramedics looking after her and she was very dazed. She had been unconscious for a while on site. They had to cut her out of the car and that took a long time, and she was in and out of consciousness for all that time. The person she was with was also injured, even worse than herself, and the two of them were on their own while the other person was unconscious, unable to communicate with her at all while they were waiting to be rescued. But in the ambulance, she kept saying to the paramedics, Uh, we must say thank you, thank you to the lady. And the paramedics asked her which lady, and she said that the lady that was with me, and they assured her there was no lady. No lady had been there, no lady to say thank you to. There'd been no witnesses. The accident had taken place in a rural, remote spot where there was no other car involved. But my friend was absolutely convinced that there had been a lady who had come alongside her and spoken to her, reassured her and particularly, this is the bit she remembered most, particularly told her not to move while she was trapped in the car. My friend was absolutely convinced that this experience was that of meeting an angel. Her hospital diagnosis later showed that she had broken her back and that if she had moved, she would have been paralysed for life. Something Paul also mentions in his interview is a poem called Footprints. Now, if you are a child of the 70s or 80s, you will know Footprints because there was a company called Athena that produced posters, And Footprints was one of the most popular posters that people bought and put on their walls. It tells of a person who sees their life as a set of footprints going across the sand. In fact, two sets of footprints side by side. The second set of footprints representing God's presence with them as they journey through life. But as they look more closely at the footprints, they see that in the times that were most troublesome for them, when they had their greatest difficulties, there is only one set of footprints. And as the poem goes on, they ask God, why? Why did you leave me? Why was there only one set of footprints? And God replies, my precious child, I love you. I will never leave you. During your trials and testing is when you saw only one set of footprints, that was when I carried you. I think I've mentioned before that my childhood was very happy. Of course it wasn't always. There were tears, frustrations, there were times when I actually, uh, well I remember feeling quite lonely. I used to get teased a lot when I was a child. Um, One thing I do remember saying to my mum when I was a teenager, something had gone wrong, I don't remember what, but I remember saying to her, my life is not going to be the same as yours. Meaning, I I can't always act like you do. I can't always react to things the, the way that you do. I think a lot of the happiness that I did have as a child was actually just given to me, created for me by my mum and dad, by my family. I think they created comfort and that they certainly always accepted me no matter what I'd done. And this has got me thinking about how did that come about? I know we all talk about the good old days and often those are times which are charged with nostalgia and some happy memories. But I've been thinking about why those days were the good old days. And for me, they're the good old days because people around me helped to create my happiness. And at that point, I've asked the question, so... Why isn't today always like the good old days? And I'm sure that we lose something of this as we face the fact that we are adults and begin to navigate our own way through adulthood. I think my parents provided me with many of the good things that they knew were good. This isn't rocket science, by the way. Uh, But, I don't know, It's, it's me thinking aloud, isn't it? I think they provided me with the good things that they knew were good, that they'd discovered made them happy through their own experience of life. But that as we become adults and meet the new demands of responsibilities, something else also happens, particularly nowadays when the world is moving so fast. I think we also, as new adults, meet uncharted challenges, which our parents didn't face, simply because they didn't grow up in the same world as we did. You know, the world moves forwards, it changes, it brings uncharted waters for each particular generation. Um, For instance, one thing I've noticed is that many people my age, I'm 57, lived through an era where divorce, late, late 80s, early 90s, really rocketed and became very prevalent. That didn't used to be so in the past. It wasn't so easy to get a divorce, so I presume, you know, it wasn't wasn't so tempting or readily accepted. I think if you were born in the nineties, you lived through an era, era where, for example, technology suddenly made or oh, what shall we say? Um we could choose any number of things. Um suddenly made pornography much easier to access than it was 30, 10, 20, 30 years before. This generation, for the generation we we have now of teens, they, of course, are moving into adulthood, emerging from the unprecedented experience of the worldwide pandemic. Uh, coupled with that, they're living with a life of which is absolutely dictated by social media. All new to them. Certainly new to us as adults who haven't grown up with that. And at this stage you have to ask yourself, well then where does the happiness come from? Who or what can possibly share an experience or a comfort that is still enough or is relevant to today? I do think that giving acceptance is perhaps one surefire way of doing this. Before I sign off today then uh, I want to say that I, I think we have to work to reclaim some of the happiness that we've experienced of the past. We have to recreate some of that happiness and then share it. So you find happiness for yourself, and then that comes from creating happiness for others. Now, whether this comes in finding God, finding old friends, acting with integrity, recognising what Paul calls a person's genius, all well, number of things. Sharing that reclamation of happiness seems to be key to me. I want to tell you about what I'm now calling the harebell effect. I lived in the countryside when I was little and we had many rural plants all around us. Uh, this was in Lewis in Sussex. The house that we rented was on the edge of the common and there were plants there that I didn't see for years and years, probably 50 years since I was seven or eight years old. And I'd completely forgotten about those plants until I moved to my recent home. Uh, one of these plants is the Harebell. If you get a chance, look, look it up. It's the most delicate, beautiful, single-headed, um, quite low-growing plant. It's a very soft lilac-y purple colour and it's one of my real favourite flowers from when I was a child. It's now growing in a wild patch of my new garden and just seeing this harebell has brought me comfort. And that comfort has simply come through a real reassurance that something, to my mind, that's from 50 years ago is still in existence. Reclaiming, as it were, a, a part of my past. It's something that's beautiful. It's something that recalls happy times and... Even just looking at it now, I I can see it from where I am um, in my garden at the moment, makes me feel happy again. So I'm going to love you and leave you by asking, what can you reclaim so that you can enjoy the hairbell effect? Thanks, Paul. Happy days.